Hello there and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad and today I have a very special guest who doesn't do too many interviews. He did, he did a lot of work in Bitcoin and created a lot of stuff that everyone uses today. But he doesn't get much credit mostly because he's quiet and he keeps on building. His name is Sergio Demian Ledner and he is the chief architect of RSK. That's what he does mostly these days. He focuses on creating new, new ways to use Bitcoin with smart contracts and stuff. And he was also interested in creating something like Bitcoin. That was his research prior to discovering Bitcoin, prior to Bitcoin existing, actually. As far as I know, he started being interested in cybersecurity and cypherpunk ethos after reading the book Applied Cryptography by Bruce Schreier. That's in your blog. I read that before our interview. And you did a lot of cool stuff from basically figuring out how many coins Satoshi had mined, which is called the Patoshi Project. And you also helped with stuff that miners use today, like the ASIC Boost. And you designed ideas for protocols that you never put into practice, but were used later in other projects like Monero and Ethereum. And you also have a consultancy firm for, not consultancy, but security auditing firm that basically deals with these projects that want to make sure that everything is fine. You do a lot of work. You don't get much credit. This is why we're here. It's really good to have you, Sergio. Uh, thanks, Vlad, for having me. And super excited for your questions. <laughs> so let's start with how you first got involved in Bitcoin, because you don't do too many podcasts. I guess it's not the most exciting question, but the audience is probably curious how you came across it and why you chose to invest so much time and work into it, and why even today you're building on top of Bitcoin. So um, a lot of years ago, like it was 2011 or so, um, I, I had finished my, my university, but uh, I, I had not finished my thesis to, you know, to graduate from from it because you know I had my job in cyber security I was fine I had I had a company a, a medical company with uh, 20 employees doing doing a lot of interesting neurophysiology equipment for Latin America uh, so once I, I decided to to finish my thesis and I chose to do it on mental poker protocols and this mental poker protocols allows you to play um, poker online uh, without an intermediate, right? So it's peer-to-peer -peer poker, so you have to take care of all the cryptography. But I also wanted to add new properties, and one of the properties that was not known at the time was something called dropout tolerance, which means that any participant could, could drop out from the poker game, and the other participants would be able to continue playing uh, without violating this uh, the, the, the strategy or, or, or revealing their scars. So when I finished this this thesis, uh, uh, I decided, okay, I'm gonna try to you know to make it use to to, to make it to, to put out on, on on use. I, I talked with a certain online casinos, and they were not interested in using anything related to peer to peer. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna put this in the public domain to let anyone play, but I need a coin. Uh, and uh, sorry, this was 2000 and probably 2009, uh, before Satoshi had created Bitcoin. And I, I, I was in the forums, in the uh, cyberpunk forums, discussing how to create anonymous, <laughs> anonymous peer-to-peer -peer coins, and there was nothing. So, okay, I said, okay, good, this is a project that I put on public domain, I forgot about it. But two years later, a friend of mine called me, says, Sergio, do you remember your mental poker framework? Yep. 
So there is a coin now that you can use to, to play poker and, and bet with that. Okay, so I, great. So at that point, I saw the perfect, the perfect uh, combination of gambling and, 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 and multi-party computation and a cryptographic uh, cryptocurrency. But as soon as I started uh, um, researching about Bitcoin, I realized it had problems, like it didn't support the smart contracts that I needed to, to run my, my own uh, mental poker framework on top of Bitcoin. So at very initially, I realized that I needed to create smart contracts on top of Bitcoin or try to convince the Bitcoiners that, you know, more uh, Turing complete capabilities on the platform would be, would be interesting to have. Uh, so, so, but, but I was super excited about, um, about Bitcoin. And, and I remember that I started working part-time on my company and the other half of the day trying to understand more and more about Bitcoin. I, I went to this, uh, this <laughs> hole of, 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 not, of not doing anything else. And because of my background on cybersecurity, I started studying the security of Bitcoin. And, and I found my first, my first vulnerability. That, that I reported to the, to the core developers of that time who were uh, uh, Gavin and Gregory and uh, Maxwell were there and some and Luke was there and and, and it was very it was a very funny vulnerability because Satoshi had uh, a system to send notifications kinds of uh, alerts within the Bitcoin network so if anything happened like there was a bug or there was a vulnerability who could um, tell everyone in the network that that was happening. And the node would receive an alert and forward it to as many peers as possible, as fast as possible. So if you um, power on, boot up a, a node, the first thing the node would do would be to receive all the alerts and send the, repeat the alerts that was not, were not forwarded to the other nodes. So I found that if you could take one of these alerts and you could malleate the signature, you could create another alert with the same hash. So what, that was the first uh, signature malleability bug that was found in, in, in Bitcoin. So basically, I could replicate uh, alerts and create billions of them. And <laughs> the simulation, I mean, the, 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 the explanation, because we never tested on, on real uh, the network, but the simulation was that every node would went down in less than 10 minutes because of the overwhelming number of alerts that I could produce. And no node would be able to come up again, because as soon as a node would, would uh, be uh, reset, then all the nodes will attack the node and fill its memory with alerts. So it was a devastating vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, th the whole system is now deprecated. It doesn't, it's not in Bitcoin anymore, uh, because it depended on you know, a single uh, public key, private key of, of Satoshi, right? And, and so I connected with the Bitcoin core development and I started a relationship with them and eventually I reported uh, more vulnerabilities like the, the, um, the hashing uh, square, um, O-square hashing problem of, of Bitcoin scripting before SegWit. I found that a different signature malleability attack uh, that also was a trigger of SegWit. Uh, I found some other... Um, efficiency problems in in the Bitcoin scripting regarding the the nested if and nested else. I found privacy vulnerabilities, so I was super super interested in, in trying to improve Bitcoin and report the vulnerabilities. But 
I didn't have Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, really. And my my first uh, my first I think my first two conferences that were in in Buenos Aires in Eco Party and in in, in LabitConf were kind of against Bitcoin. Like I, I was saying, okay, this is fantastic, but it doesn't scale. It's not private enough for 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 my cypherpunk ethos. Like it's not private enough, and so we need more layers on top of this. Uh, so very early, I was very interested in, in building on top of Bitcoin because uh, in, in the 2015, the, um, the block size wars, it, was, it became very clear that upgrading or modifying Bitcoin would be, would be much more difficult as, as time passes, right? So it became very important to build on top of, on top of Bitcoin in, in layers. Yeah, you did quite a lot over the years. And there are lots of projects of yours that I like, including something that's called BitBanknotes. I remember, I think that's how I came across your research the first time, because I already knew about this saying that basically if you watch in any YouTuber today, he's going to say, yeah, Satoshi Nakamoto has one million coins. And that was your research that became most famous. But how I came across your work was through researching the idea of making cash with Bitcoin making it private to transfer, making it seamless peer-to-peer. And I found your proposals for bit banknotes. And you also mentioned in your research that Gavin Andreessen had suggested something similar with paper wallets. And it was an interesting research. And I was actually curious how or why this never became a thing, because it scales Bitcoin on a local level, and it also makes it pretty fungible. So the research, I, I wanted to, I, I leave... Uh, in Argentina, where you know people are used to cash, and cash has this anonymity kind of property, so I wanted Bitcoin to be as easy for people to use as cash, and uh, and without relying on, on on their smartphones or anything. So, I I I wanted to do create a, a card, a, a microprocess card that you could just give as if as if it was a a, a banknote, right? And so the first version of it, it was called the firm coin, and it's still there are a couple of uh, coin uh, coinless articles about about the firm coin, the, the very early versions of it, of it that they, they work very well, and you could redeem that. Um, the the most advanced version had a a display where you could actually see the, the amount of bitcoins that were inside the car, but the the problem was that the car cost about uh, six to seven dollars each. And, and so it, it was very expensive just to use as, uh, you know, as a, a medium for, for payments because you had to subtract the cost of the, of the card to make sure that you pay the right amount. So for high, high denomination, it's, it works, but for lower denomination, it doesn't. But what was very interesting in the research of the firm coin is that this is something that, that had a lot, of <laughs> a lot of implications later. We needed to prove that the firmware of the firm coin was authentic without having it, uh, because we, we, we didn't want it to uh, depend on attestation from a root of trust authority, right? So we needed the, the, the firmware in itself to be able to prove to the outside world that it was running a specific version. And that algorithm, that, that protocol that we designed, was actually the, the, the cornerstone of, of proving uh, that you have a replica of certain information, which lead to uh, a, a, 
uh, yes, a proposal that I made many years ago about proof of uh, blockchain ownership, like proving that you have a copy of, of the blockchain data. And so you are able to get uh, paid for having that information. And then that was the, the basis for Filecoin. Because the, the Filecoin obviously has has uh, more advanced cryptographic protocols, but the 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 essence is how to prove that you have a replica of certain information, and it's different from other replicas that are in the network. So we used an asymmetric uh, encoding, where uh, encoding was very slow, but the coding was very fast, and you would encode the identity of the device in the firmware. And, and all the firmware is encrypted with this encoding function. And if you take a look at Filecoin today, there is similar, similar techniques that are being used. Uh, so, so it was super interesting, but the cost was prohibitive. Probably if I had, if, if 10, maybe now, if you want to create, uh, let's say a million of them, then you can lower the cost to a few dollars maybe, or less. Uh, but in that time, you know, if you wanted to create a hundred, then it was very costly. Wasabi Wallet is unfairly private. It's the most advanced, most used Bitcoin privacy wallet with a half a million downloads across Windows, Mac OS and Linux, as well as thousands of fresh and new Bitcoins get mixed every month. Wasabi makes use of the new generation Wabisabi engineer to create mega coin joints, thus mixing your Bitcoins with those of hundreds of other users. For amounts lower than 0.01 BTC and remixes, you pay no coordination fee. If you don't use your coin joints, Wasabi Wallet has a native tar integration and downloads block filters to help you keep your network level and public key privacy. Downloads Wasabi Wallet for free today at wasabiwallet.io and experience the future of Bitcoin privacy. Before I move on to the next question, I just want to say that I forgot to say that we are in La Cripta, which is Augustine's house, and he was kind enough to let us use it for this interview. And I must also thank CryptoSteel and Wasabi Wallet for paying for my trip to come here to Argentina and being able to do this interview. And speaking of Wasabi Wallet, you were, Sergio, one of the first people to do proper and more advanced blockchain analysis with public data that was already available against the backlash that you received on Bitcoin Talk at the time, that you should not be doing this because it's immoral or something. And you proved, or at least you, you had a very plausible theory that Satoshi Nakamoto might have mined 1 million Bitcoins, but your theory also proved that Satoshi never sold a single Bitcoin. And coincidentally, at the time, the price went up after you published your article. What's the story behind this? And how did you come to that conclusion? So... At that time, I think it was 2013, after two years of working in Bitcoin, I didn't own Bitcoin. And I was saying, okay, maybe it's time to buy some, right? And uh, so I'm terribly skeptic, like as many uh, security, cybersecurity guys, they, 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 they are super, super scary of anything. So they, they want to uh, research. So I was wondering, okay, is was really fair the distribution like, how was it? Like, how many people do have Bitcoin? What amounts? So I did just a very simple, basic uh, analysis. I, say, I said, okay, if Satoshi was present during a, a full year, and if if the Satoshi's computer was the one that had mined the first 10 blocks, let's say it's highly probable that that, that, that Satoshi mined the first 
few blogs. Maybe some other people join, but it's something that you can assume, right? Uh, and then it was very easy to 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 um, to say that Satoshi had a million bitcoins with just those few elements. Um, but yeah, when I when I tell this very simple theory on the forums on Bitcoin Talk forums, then a few people told me, you know, she yelled at me like I was kind of uh, uh, like uh, shooting at, at at our god or something, right? Like uh, trying to 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 break our myth or something, right? And I was saying it's not it's not what I want. I, ju I just really want to understand better the origins. And so I said after after people just told me not to, um, I just say okay, I, I need to have proof. And I I went to the blockchain, I start I coded a, a program to analyze, and I I found that there was a correlation. I mean, that the each block has kind of let's say two clocks. One is the, the, the real-time clock, right, the, the, the timestamp, and the other was a free-running clock, which was not meant to be that, but is the, um, the extra nonce, which never reset in the early versions of Bitcoin. So now that I have two clocks, I can correlate them, and I can find exactly the speed, the, the slope, right, the relation of these two clocks, so I can find the speed that each one of these blocks is being mined, if I can just find... Yeah, I can I can connect blocks that have the same slope. So I just uh, put that information in a in a diagram, and then everything was super clear. Like I I, I remember that in the article I wrote, uh, an image is worth a thousand words, which is a Spanish Spanish uh, phrase. I don't know if it's an English phrase, but yeah. so so it it was so clear that I was I stared at it for 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 a lot lot of time, and I I counted the number of uh, of uh, blocks that were that was related to the original uh, genesis, and it was about uh, a million of them. So the all things match. And I, I published the article. I had no Bitcoin. Had no intention. I, I just wanted to make sure that the article was perceived in a very positive way. Well, for me, Satoshi was like was really like something to worship. Like I loved the the, the way the paper is written. I loved the code. I, I was fascinated with it. So I tried to make this as positive as possible for the future generations to read it and understand that if you are going to create Bitcoin, you need to maintain its security in the beginning. There's no way that you can just roll it and forget about it. Because if it's important for you, then you want to, to keep it safe, at least for the times where it's vulnerable. So, so I, I, I published the article and I was going to sleep. This was like 2, 2 a.m. in the morning. And I said, I'm, I'm going to stay a little bit more longer watching the, the stats, right? And I had my blog that had like 10 visits a day. And it started to go up and up and up and up until there was tens of thousands of visits. And in two days, uh, there was like 30,000 or 35,000 visits to my blog. I think I didn't sleep for the whole night. I just stared at the numbers. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and Bitcoin actually went up like 10%. And I was like, I, I was thinking like 35,000 people, that's every single Bitcoiner in the planet, right? Everyone read the article. And so I was thinking that what we discover, what I had discovered is that there were two things. First, that yeah, Satoshi had some, some Bitcoins and the other is he had almost spent nothing over the years, with the ups and downs, he could have, you know, dumped half of it or 
any, any amount of it in the in the in the peaks, but he didn't. So that it's a it's a very strong signal that he was committed to the project. And then after that, uh, help, people that helped me and and different research I did afterwards, we found like five different ways of identifying the same Patoshi pattern with different things, right? Uh, the fact that Satoshi turned off his mining machines for five minutes after he mined a block just to make sure that the other had the opportunity to mine blocks. For instance, that's, that's a, a thing that you can easily check with the Patoshi blocks. And, um, and the, the nonce, the, the, nonce the, the fact that the nonce is mined on a reduced range, it doesn't scan the full uh, 32 bits like... There, there is some intervals on it, and there are certain intervals that are scanned and certain intervals that are not scanned. So you can very easily see which are... So there are almost five different ways. Also, I found that Satoshi... This is very interesting research that I did many years later, that Satoshi didn't, didn't count, like didn't increment the nonce as the other miners, like from, from zero to, to the top, like he did it in reverse. <laughs> and for that, I had to remine every single one of the Satoshi blocks to make sure that that was like, it's very interesting. Like what I try to find if, let's say that I'm, I'm Satoshi, right? And I want to see if the same block template had a different solution in a, in a lower nonce or in a higher nonce. So if I scan from the lower nonce to the higher and I bump into a solution, of a block before I reach Satoshi's solution, that means that he was not scanning from low to high. He reached his solution from the highest nonce to the lowest nonce. And I found in every single of Satoshi blocks that there were many ones that had solution in the lower part, but not over the solution that Satoshi found. So that is a very simple explanation why the blocks are mined by a different type of hardware. So now there are many ways of distinguish. And the question is why? Why there are so many ways to distinguish Satoshi blocks? And I, my, my answer, my, I'm almost sure that he wanted us to know that those were his blocks. And so everyone knows now that there are be a million blocks that probably nobody's going to touch, nobody's going to sell, and they are there forever. Hmm? Yeah, combis blocks, yes, yes. So they are combis that, combases that have never been spent and probably never will. Yeah. I think the argument that I read to combat your theory is that Satoshi had a line of C++ code which did not allow Bitcoin as a network to launch until there were at least two, mi two nodes mining at the same time. And also there, was th there were a few people on the Bitcoin talk forum claiming that they were there mining at the same time. But what you just told me that Satoshi basically was mining in reverse in the way that he was counting down to the hash means that he tried to disadvantage himself compared to the rest of the network? No, it's, it's, it's the same. If you scan from low to top or top to bottom, it's the same space you are scanning, just in different order. But let me tell you about the uh, what you said first. Um, yeah, so it's very interesting that Bitcoin nodes at that time they would increment the extra nonce every time a block was received because the inner loop, the mining loop, would go, would break, right? And then we'd get in again with a different block template. 
while Satoshi did not do that. So everything you, you find about their, the client, the 0.1 client, it's highly probable that Satoshi code was different. So those theories do not work because we have proof that it's not the same loop, it's scanned differently, and it also it, it, it doesn't interrupt when a block is coming. So it's probably, it was a kind of system that was disconnected from the outside. Maybe it was just kind of one direction, like somehow the blocks, the new uh, last days block arrived and, but it's, it was not really, I don't know, this is just, <laughs> I'm guessing, right? But it's, it was very different from the code that was uh, uh, published. Yeah, it's cert certainly a very interesting research. And the way that I think about Satoshi's coins these days is that they're a bounty to prove that the cryptography works. Because if you can brute force a private key, which means that you determine the private key from the public key, then it means that your coins are not safe. But if these coins, which are out there in the wild and are visible and well-known, are secure, it means that your coins are also secure. Um, the, the original uh, Coinbase's are paid to public key hash. So this is kind of a bounty against, uh, you know, discrete log, um, the breaking the discrete log problem. Uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it would be very interesting if we see something changing on those Coinbase's. Uh, it would mean that probably that we, we, we need to move to, to something uh, quantum, quantum safe, right? Yeah, we get a lot of advertisement for these super powerful quantum computers, but if they were really that capable, they should at least break one wallet and prove that they work, but they don't. And I think that these claims are usually fundraisers, attempts for researchers to get funds from investors with the promise that they will be able to deliver that. But even in that case, I think Peter Todd told me that it's easy to calculate qubits, but it's harder to put them into practice for a certain application. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be an improvement, but it's not going to be like from, from one day to another. And the Bitcoiners have already think thought about techniques to migrate uh, before this happens. Like if, if the cryptography is not broken, you, you still can implement new new cryptographic schemes like Merkle Winternitz or, or, or one of the latest standardized um, uh, signature schemes, uh, quantum resistance, and, and, and move, move the funds. Obviously, if someone never moves the funds, those funds will be, uh, will be in a problem. And I, I, I wonder what should we do with, with Patoshi addresses in that case if we are, if we reach the point where quantum computers are are problematic then what i think it's a good question what should we do should we kind of block all of them or let anyone uh, take them it's it's kind of uh, interesting crypto steel offers a durable physical backup for cryptocurrency key and recovery words these user-friendly cold storage devices withstand harsh conditions including fires floods and earthquakes Made from the finest European stainless steel, they are built to last. Accessible to all and requiring no computer skills, the original CryptoSteel cassette and capsule have been innovating Bitcoin security since 2013. They provide a reliable and robust backup, essential for the safety and longevity of your digital investments. Ideal for protecting your digital wealth. CryptoSteel isn't just a one-trick pony. Of course, it works with your Beep39 seed phrase 
but you can also use it for important passwords, Bitcoin core passphrases, Nostra private keys, and much more. Buy your CryptoSteel metal backup today from CryptoSteel.com and use promo code BTCTKVR to get a 10% discount. CryptoSteel, secure your Bitcoin like an OG. Yeah, it certainly is, but I, I think a good way to preserve Bitcoin if we move to a different type of cryptography is to also ensure that whoever the creator was, if he was able to return, unless he's dead or something, is able to use the coins. I, I think also it, the fact that the coins are there is a challenge for us to respect private property and the degree to which we can do that. Because I've heard many people want to integrate some way of redistributing these coins. And ideas float around. I think the biggest bet that Satoshi made was that this having cycles would be sustainable for the network and that the fees would be able to make up for the di diminishing Coinbase reward. And I think that's the biggest uncertainty in Bitcoin right now because we know we can make it happen, but we don't know how. I mean, we do have proposals, as in there are big blockers, there are people who like sidechains that are merged mined, there are people who think that we're going to pay high fees no matter what. We have lots of approaches, and there's also Peter Todd who wants to steal a mission. But I think that's the least likely of them all. No, the, the least likely is to create arbitrary inflation and whatever. But it's good that we think about these problems in advance. And speaking of thinking about problems in advance, let's also talk about Rootstock. Because I think that you're building really cool stuff. It's smart contracting technology that has interoperability with Ethereum, as far as I know. It's basically the more secure version of Ethereum, which is secured by the Bitcoin miners. More than 50% of them are also merge mining Rootstock. How did you come up with the idea and what is the current state of the project? So um, it, it goes back to 2013 where I was in, in San Jose uh, conference and I, I had created for my poker platform a smart, uh, Turing complete smart contract platform that was called Quixcoin. That was like one year before Ethereum. And, but I was very short-sighted and I was, I mean, my platform was... Uh, only for gaming, right? I didn't know, I, I didn't think about the financial applications. I just focused on, on my thesis and gaming. So I created the platform. I asked people to collaborate and everyone was focused on Bitcoin. I say, okay. Uh, but I, I didn't want to create a, an altcoin. I was super, even at that time, I was maximalist. Like I, I had all the, the whole platform working and I didn't want to launch it as an altcoin. So I, 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 I waited for sidechain technology too to be developed. But a year later, Ethereum came and, um, and uh, Vitalik and Ethereum Con uh, Foundation contacted me to do the first security and design audits of Ethereum. So was I, I was able to be very close to the, you know, the initial designs. I remember collaborating in some of the ideas, like I think that some, some of the concept of gas limit was, uh, was suggested by me. Uh, and and, and I, the idea of account abstraction was uh, written fully in the original design documents, like something that it needs to be added to Ethereum at that point in time. 
and I found vulnerabilities in the oh the 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 eth hash um, eth hash uh, proof of work function was based on on a protocol that I designed it was called run memo hash and was taken by Ethereum. So I was involved, but I was still a Bitcoin maximalist. So so I say okay now that I have learned all about this, I want to bring this to Bitcoin, and so. People told me why. Why are you bringing the the EVM? Like the, this was uh, when I, when I decided that the technology was was ready to be brought into Bitcoin as a sidechain. People told me essentially Bitcoiners and 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 the, told us because we were a group working on this, not not myself only, right? Um, told us wh why do you want to bring this foreign EVM into Bitcoin? Like it has a lot of problems. It it has a security vulnerabilities like reentrancy problems and why don't you use a, a domain specific language that can be proven and I, I my answer was the, the vm is not important like you can emulate any vm from any other vm so what you need is developers to be engaged and and they will find a way to improve it to build on top of it like all the vms at the end are almost the same right they, they, they just uh, uh, perform the instructions you want. So if, you, if there is a potential vulnerability, we will fix it. And in fact, uh, the original Rootstock uh, had additional opcodes to prevent certain vulnerabilities. For instance, it had an opcode which was called simply send, which was able to send bitcoins or, or, or smart bitcoins, what we called them at the time, without executing any, any logic to prevent re-entrancy attacks. Uh, but when we and we also had an opcode which was called um, upgrade something that allowed you to upgrade contracts without these these tricks that you have to do now with self-destruct or a lot of things you have to do now. It's, it's very problematic and has caused lot of uh, uh, lot of uh, losses in in vulnerabilities in in Ethereum. Uh, um, like so so, but at at the end, like after some time, we realized that. Being incompatible was not the way because we we just needed everyone in in this in Ethereum and and to come and and use Rustock, so we dropped the we we dropped the the incompatible opcodes. Even if we thought okay this is better, it was better to wait and until the the ecosystem mature uh, than to to have innovation on on the opcode level. But we did have a lot of innovation. On the data structures, like if you take a look at how the state is organized in Ethereum and in Rootstock, it's very different. Like in Rootstock, it's a binary tree, and it's a binary tree that is super efficient. Like uh, an account can take approximately uh, twelve bytes on a node on a tree, while in Ethereum it takes almost uh, two hundred bytes. Like it's much more efficient, and also you can create um, inclusion proofs and 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 stateless client much easy. Uh, so we we did a lot of things to to improve the inner workings of the of the of the EVM, but on the on the outer side it's super compatible. Like you have the Web three RPC layer which is compatible. You have all the opcodes, and we try to be always you know at, at least the the ones the the opcodes and the the improvements that Ethereum does that we feel that they are important or. Uh, yeah, that it was useful. We bring them, but we still we are still Bitcoiners, and the native currency on Rootstock is Bitcoin, and will always be Bitcoin. Yeah, and something else that's very interesting is that you launched the first ever Bitcoin sidechain, and it was shortly after Blockstream published their paper on how to do sidechains. 
which they didn't follow through with their implementation of Liquid. And you used a different trust model, which uses HSMs, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do a sidechain and how the security works? Yeah, we were. Oh, everyone was very excited with the uh, Blockstream um, sidechain paper based on SPB proof, but it had some problems. Like the first one was that any kind of sidechain was needed to be UTXO based. Like basically, it was kind of a clone of Bitcoin. With you could obviously do different things, but essentially. Bitcoin would understand a single type of, of sidechain, right? With certain blocks and, 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 and all. That was super limiting in the amount of innovation that you could do. But they bumped into a much harder problem, which was a theoretical problem. Maybe they didn't know when they started the project, but it was a, a, a theoretical limit, which says that basically you cannot do trustless bridging unless either you have a synchrony assumption, which means that both chains are synchronized. Let's say you have a rollup or you have a sync chain or, or something. Or um, there, is a, there is a rational uh, requirement, like you have some collateral or some crypto economic incentive. That is when you create a bridge with collateral in, in certain other token, which is something obviously I, I don't appreciate as, 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 as a big Bitcoin thing, having another token as collateral. I don't like that. And um, and and yeah. So and the other the other uh, assumption that you can make is that you have a honest majority. Like, let's say like fifty one percent of the miners are honest, or fifty one percent of the sidechain miners are honest, or both. And and then you are ma you manage to create a decentralized bridge. And this I think that when Blockstream researchers realized that this was a, a theoretical result, they felt I, I guess frustrated and they abandoned the project. Uh, but uh, Alexei Samyatin, who was here uh, these days uh, and talked with us a lot about about his his projects, he published the paper with all the proof that this is the case. So if you want to, you, if you have to make some as assumptions to create a, a real uh, decentralized bridge, then yeah, let's try to find a more realistic, practical, pragmatic, secure assumptions that you can make. And uh, obviously, the idea of having a federation and multi-sig is attractive because you, if if it is really distributed and and really uh, there is a different in in in, uh, in jurisdictions and geographical distribution and all, then you get more it, it's more secure. Obviously, if it is fake, then you get nothing, right? But but like the the nomad bridge, like like it was all the keys held by the single person, right? But if it's really decentralized, you you are better. And the next step. That was, I think, it was suggested by me, not 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 uh, not by me, but by Juliano Rizzo, which is uh, was was the, the co-founder with me of Coinspect, the the comp, uh, security auditing company. He says uh, he was much more involved in in, in cybersecurity than me at that time. He says there is no way you can store a private key in a in a server. Like it's gonna be stolen. You need to use HSMs. So we, we implemented HSMs. The first release, they just kept the private keys uh, protected, but they still obeyed the, the, the computer that was, that was connected to the HSMs. Like if, if the, we, we call them pegnatories, right? The, the, the ones that are holding one of these HSM devices, the, the uh, POE HSMs. So the, the pegnatory software would tell, okay, sign this, sign that, and, and the HSM would just blindly sign it. 
So that was just the first step to, to isolate the private key. But now we need something better. We need to run a SPB node of Rootstock inside the HSM so that the only way to convince the device to sign something is to bring it a lot of hash rate, a cumulative hash rate. That means that the command comes probably or with highly probability from the best chain. So we did that. It took us like four months to, 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 to launch the first release. And then we improve it, improve it, improve it. We, we are constantly, uh, I mean, we, I mean, the, the, the core developers and the community uh, are constantly improving uh, the HSMs. Uh, but up, I think that at this point, we are, I'm, I'm, I'm confident we, we have reached a, a, a point of high security. Uh, so, so even if all the pegnatories collude, like everyone is malicious and they want to extract the privacy keys, they can't. They, 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 don't, they need to, I mean, the command to withdraw funds needs to come from a blockchain that has, at this point, six, uh, 36 hours of full Bitcoin hash rate, if I'm not mistaken. So you, you, if you think that the, how hard it is to, 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 double spe to, to revert one Bitcoin block, well, you have to think about, uh, the, I think it's more than, uh, would be like more than 200 blocks of Bitcoin to really uh, cheat one of these devices. But, you know, there things, bad things happen. So we keep improving, we keep proposing new things and, and, the, the, the thing we were discussing these days about BitBM, and that's super promising. And I hope that we could uh, migrate Rustock to BitBM. I'm, I'm at this point, I'm every day working on BitBM, trying to, 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 to improve it, trying to, to, to make it uh, more efficient, to, trying to, to, to do less of pre-signing, that it creates a lot of pre-signing. So I think it's super promising. Uh, maybe, maybe we could just have like two, at the beginning, maybe two different uh, uh, ways of controlling the funds, one with a BitBM bridge and the other with a standard, with, with our own proof of work HSMs. And then when we are super confident that this is uh, the right path to go, then maybe we can drop the, the HSMs. But of course, it's, it's the community decision. So I'm, I'm, my, my, my research now is to propose the best possible alternate uh, bridge using BitBM. Satochip provides open source solutions based on SmartCard to assist you in your crypto journey. The hardware wallet lets you safely store your private keys within the tamper-proof chip memory, while Satodime allows you to create a barrier cold storage in two clicks thanks to its mobile app. And SeedKeeper is the ultimate hardware device to store and manage your seed phrases. Become self-custody with Satochip. Your keys, your coins. Uh, in regards to what you said about this being the community's decision, I feel sometimes that Bitcoin has a culture problem as it's being pitched as digital gold and nothing more. When in fact it can do pretty much everything with side chains with second layers there is so much that you can do in terms of financial applications or even non-financial applications with bitcoin but people don't use it because on one hand they they have this huddle culture that they should only hold their bitcoin and not use it for anything else and there's also this culture of toxic maximalism which says that everything that does not follow the orthodoxy of a few use cases 
is degenerate or evil and should not be tried. And Rootstock has been around for six years now, or seven. Yeah, it was launched in 2018. I mean, we started in 2016, but launched in 2018, so it'd be like five years, right? Um, so, so your, your question was about the the, the culture. So, uh, when when I wanted to 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 implement opcodes in Bitcoin, I, I think I have a couple of proposals there. Uh, not beeps, but just forum posts trying to to see if, if there was a possibility. Uh, uh, the first drive chain proposal, I did the first drive chain proposal after reading a Truthcoin article. I did implement the first drive chain and uh, created the first drive chain beep. So I, I wanted Bitcoin to have uh, more capabilities. But very soon I realized that it was not the way that Bitcoin had. Bitcoin works uh, uh, unless at, at, at that point, like you have to show a real use case. You don't push things into Bitcoin because you liked it. There must be a real use case that is overwhelming important for Bitcoin. And I said that the only way to do this is to show the world that there is a use case that is worth it. And that use case is financial inclusion. And I, I came to realize this when I when met my, the, the, the group that we co-founded Rustock, uh, Diego Gutierrez Aldivar and, and Gaku, Gabriel Kurman, and, and Adrian uh, Edelman and Ruben, and so we 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 really we we I learned about financial inclusion, the problems of of, of the unbanked, and I said and 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 I said okay, this is that Bitcoin was was meant to solve this problem too, and so okay, store of value that's fantastic, but we need to you know to put this technology on the hands of the unbanked, and so the only way to do that was through Rustock and smart contracts, and we very initially realized that stablecoins collateralized with Bitcoin would be the most decentralized way to, to allow people to, to join the, the, the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Because poor people really, first, they don't have wealth to save. They just, have, they just need for small amounts and generally it's using payments. So the only way for them to enter this ecosystem is through stablecoins. So maybe after they feel confident about the technology, they can buy Bitcoin. But the the the, the entrance is stablecoins. So I think that it was very important to have a decentralized stablecoin on Rustock and uh, Manion Chain was the first to to bring it, and it's uh, it's been doing great. And then uh, there are some others now, uh, like uh, USD Reef, and there is a sovereign dollar. Uh, so you have competing dollar pegs. And all of them collateralized. So it's an it's a advancement. I spoke with someone yesterday, and I'm not going to give the name because it was a private conversation, but I can reveal the statement. What he said was that sidechains are obsolete and they're going to be replaced by rollups. Do you have any opinion on that? Um, rollups are very interesting uh, because there is you have this synchrony assumption that you can make like block error blocks are interleaved in, in in bitcoin blocks but since bitcoin does not work as a settlement layer for rollups like it's only a, a data availability layer for rollups then you you have not solved the bridge problem so it's it's like you you have the same problem you have to build a bridge 
And what technology are you going to use to build a bridge? You are going to take Rootstock technology because it's ready open source based on, 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 on publicly available HSM devices that cost uh, $100. So this is the technology you're going to take if you want to go to market fast. Why are you going to create a new bridge? Or you find BitVM and you manage to do it that with BitVM, then obviously that would be the best probably. Uh, but, but until we are sure that we can do this securely with BitVM, then you still need a bridge. Uh, even if you are a roll-up, you still need a bridge. And the other problem of rollups is that you are using Bitcoin as a data availability layer. That means that transactions are going to be expensive. And rooster transactions cost less than cents, less than cents generally. So it's really useful for financial inclusion. And rollups will not because you, the, 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 the block space cost will, will go up. I mean, everyone expects that as Bitcoin price appreciates. So rollups will be expensive. You will have more, and the other thing is that rollups cannot have a higher block rate than ten minutes, unless you do some other consensus algorithm like leader election or something. But and most of the DeFi use cases require thirty seconds or less. Like Rustock has a, a average block interval between fifteen and thirty seconds, which miners can tune. They can kind of select which block interval between those limits. Uh, currently, it's it's thirty seconds. But uh, more than that, then it's not very well suited for payments. And, and the advantages of having a fast on-chain payments is it's very important. Also, if you are going to create a payment channel network on top of Rootstock or the Lightning Network on top of Rootstock, because one of the problems I see with the Lightning Network is if a, if a payment fails, there, there's no follower system. So you have to wait, I don't know, if you have to open a channel or something, you have to wait 10 minutes. But let's say that you have a Lightning Network in Rootstock connected with a Lightning Network in Bitcoin, exchanging Bitcoins like smoothly. And then, okay, if you cannot make the payment go through, then you just make it online, you pay a little more, and it's all transparent. You don't even realize that that happened on the, you know, under the hood. So there are many, many benefits of having a, a, um, a high block rate. And one of the things that I'm working, I was working before uh, BitBM came, but I'm still, I'm still uh, writing. It's uh, one of the problems of, uh, of, of, of merge mining, which is what Rustock does, is there is a potential risk of uh, uh, mining uh, extractable value or, or maximum extractable value, as it calls today, which is, you know, if if uh, if mining, let's say mining uh, sidechain nodes requires more hardware or requires more um, processing or solving more difficult problems, then you know that could influence uh, miners to centralize, right? And this is a problem. So one of the solutions that is a post-talk solution is BIP three hundred and one, which proposes blind merge mining as a mean that uh, any any miner can participate in 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 earning from, from sidechains, not securing, but just uh, having a, um, a revenue from sidechains without even running a sidechain node, which I think is super powerful. But the problem, there are two problems with this BIP. One is that it only works for blockchains with 10-minute block interval because it uses Bitcoin as the auctioning mechanism. So the bid and the, the the settlement of the bid everything it's it's 10 blocks uh, 10 minutes on average so uh, and and in rustock we don't have that so we want we we want to have our own blind merge mining system and i have two proposals one is 
internal to Rustock, but I, I don't want to solve the problem for Rustock. I wanted to solve it from any sidechain. So the, the, this new idea that I'm writing is it's called the BitChain, which is basically a very, very lightweight sidechain that will be the kind of the backbone for all sidechains to connect. So it will be very fast blocks, but the, it, will, it will have limitation on the UTXO set size and the blockchain will be pruned on consensus. Like everything will be made so that this sidechain can only have one purpose, which is um, um, provide the bidding mechanism for the, all the sidechains. Well, currently there's only one sidechain, but I, I, I really think the sidechain, the merge mine sidechain ecosystem could grow, uh, could, could, could grow, and I, I expect other sidechains to come. I don't know if it's going to be one year, two years, or ten years, but uh, but I hope that uh, also Rusto gives uh, sets a precedent that this is uh, useful. Hello, Bitcoin Takeover listeners. This is Victor from IVPN. We could have produced the flash yet with lofty claims, but we like the straightforward approach, so I'll just uh, stick to the basics here. How are we different from other VPN providers? IVPN is run by Bitcoiners. We've been accepting Bitcoin since before the block size wars, now using BTC Pay Server, and also accept Lightning payments. We also aim for radical transparency supported by open source software, regular audits, and a transparent team. And finally, there's absolutely no KYC with IVPN, we don't ask for an email or any other personal information when you sign up. If you would like to test our service, send an email to trial at ivpn.net to receive a 30-day IVPN Pro voucher. Hello, I'm Vlad and I have been a user of IVPN Pro for longer than one year. What I like the most about it is being able to use seven devices at the same time and using the multi-hop feature to connect to two different servers of my choosing at the same time. Also, your account consists of a randomly generated string of letters and numbers which are not linked to your email address, bank account or real-life identity. You top it up with a lightning payment and you get instant confirmation at low fees. Definitely get your 30-day IVPN Pro trial by sending an email to trial at ivpn.net. Make sure you use a burner email address that you probably already have for trolling. Uh, I think we only have time for one more question according to the schedule. So I have to ask you this, how can the regular user get started with Rootstock today? What can they install? What can they run on phones or computers? And also, where can people keep up with your work and follow what you're doing? Okay, so as, as I work in the research area, I, I really don't care about <laughs> the many wallets that support Rootstock. There are many. Um, but I would say I would go to the Rootstock uh, website, which is uh, a, a site that is maintained by IOB Labs. Uh, contributing to the Rustock ecosystem, there you will have a list of wallets, a uh, list of, uh, of, uh, of of tools that you can use. There is an explorer. There is a, a stats website that tells you about the network. There is a website that tells you about the state of the pegnatories and the and where you can see the attestation of each one of the pegnatories, which is a, a message that is signed by the device that makes sure that the device is running the exact firmware version. So a lot of information that you can get from the Rustock uh, I/O, starting from the Rustock I/O website, and there is a discourse channel that you can check. I don't I don't. Uh, no, remember the exact uh, address, 
but you can start from the Rustok I.O. And the second question was, uh, how can you follow me? Or I have a Twitter um, handle, which is sdlearner. Uh, I, I plan to move to Nostrs some sometime, uh, but I haven't tried yet, so it's one of my pending stuff. And I have a blog, which I'm not kind of... Uh, using much more but you can find all the information about patoshi pattern which is called bitslog.com and I, all the articles i write about rustok are generally in in medium because it's very so easy to read there so <laughs> okay so thank you very much vlad it was uh, it was a pleasure to to talk and to meet you in person because uh, you came you came long trip here i very much appreciate your time it wasn't easy to get you because you're always busy but I appreciate that you came here and you gave me one hour of your time. And now I have to run, catch my flight. <laughs> so thank you. And don't forget to subscribe and follow Sergio. Okay. How was it? Excellent. Ooh, battery low. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a nice...